Hi, everybody, and welcome to a very special Patreon bonus episode of 80s All Over. I'm Drew McQueenie, your co-host, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, Scott? What's up, buddy? Uh, this is really exciting. This is uh, We have a guest here who uh, not only is the highlight of many films, he is a great podcast host and a very funny guy. Why don't you uh, tell us your background about this gentleman before you introduce him, Drew? Uh, just met him uh, uh, several years ago doing you know what we do, interviews, things like that, and realized that his love of movies, both good and terrible films, is very genuine. Um, and then started listening to How Did This Get Made, which is as entertaining a take on film, good or bad films, as anybody's doing right now. So it is a real delight to welcome Paul Shear. Well, guys, that was a uh, fantastic introduction. Thank you so much. I will say that I am also uh, huge fans of both of you guys. Uh, Drew, I love your Star Wars book uh, as, as oh, much as you, I man. love everything else. But I want to talk about that because it was uh, it's a great uh, you're watching it wrong. Uh, love it. And it's so, so good. And Scott, we are Twitter friends. So this is our first time. I'm actually I feel like really uh, hearing your voice or at least the voice that I've created for you on Twitter is different. And yes. so there we go. This is a uh, so I'm fans of uh, of both of you and what you do and and what you talk about and I'm excited to be on this podcast because I like you guys are uh, am like I am all 80s movies. If like if you were to, you know, my I am made up of 80s movies. It's hard not to be. Like I think our age group um even if you don't watch them actively, so much of their DNA is in everything we digest now. And so like it is the the source of a lot of our pop culture at the moment well you know don't don't you feel like to a certain extent too it's like there weren't that many choices when we were growing up so you would watch the same movies over and over again now you know there's so much to consume as a child and a kid and youtube and everything but for me it's like i had a ratty tape of back to the future and ghostbusters and all my you know and star wars and star trek and coming to america and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I would just watch them. That was like my home library. It was over and over and over again. I was like, oh, I guess we're going to watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off today again. You know, whereas I think I don't think kids have that. That's one of the, my favorite things about your podcast was the story that June told about why Grease 2 was important to her. And that said everything about how movies were digested back then, because a lot of times you would. You'd have like three or four films in the house, and you would end up getting to know those films intimately. Uh, you know what's interesting about our show is that we like to try and talk about like what what we thought of the film then versus how it stands now. And people have made the point to me, uh, my editor at Nerdist, Rachel, she's a huge fan of Grease 2. And after that episode, uh, she, she, I think it was her, she pointed out that Grease has kind of gone down in, in reputation over the years because it's kind of smutty and tacky. And Grease 2, its reputation has kind of gone up in, in the last 30 years. So, so interesting. Well, because again, it's what you, like, I guess, you know, Grease is like your parents' movie, or at least per uh, the perception was like, oh, my parents like Grease. And I guess Grease 2 came out more in our generation to a certain extent. I don't know, even though they're both like, you know, like I never understood that Happy Days was not a show that aired in the 50s until much later in my life. <laughs> like I was like, oh, yeah, that's like a show. Like, my parents watched that show. They did not realize that that was, that was something like a contemporary show of Mork and Mindy, uh, you know. <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, to me, one of the, the great memories too, just like movies at home, were those, and I don't, maybe I'm dating myself, but we are all probably about the same age, um, getting the 1999 boxed VHS movie, like Temple of Doom was 1999, Home Alone was 1999, you could go to the supermarket, you could buy a VHS tape, and like, they were so expensive, like if you were to buy a VHS Back in the day, they were like a hundred. They listed at like a hundred twelve dollars. Yeah, that, that was the funny part is that if you rented a VHS tape, you had to treat it like gold because if you broke it, your dad had to pay ninety bucks. And then exactly. one day we turned around and, like you said, Paul, Home Alone and ET and other stuff were available for twenty five bucks, and it was holy shit. Yeah, like, and it was like, I get this, I get this piece of gold. Like, what you know? It was like, yeah, it was a real interesting uh, time. Yeah, I, I, I. One of the great things about the deep dive stuff that you guys do is that you occasionally stumble over movies that have a certain reputation and you watch them and you guys have your own reactions to them. And a big part of what we're trying to do is say that the eighties were more than like 15 films. And I know we all talk about those 15, but already so many of the things that we've come across, I consider real gems that 
it's fun to see people then go, okay, I'm going to watch Barbarossa or I'm going to track down used cars or I'm gonna, movies that are not oh, in the, the verdict. Pe- people have blown up over the verdict death trap. You know, Paul, I'm sure just like you have, uh, uh, you know, have uh, B plus feedback on one episode and then you'll have a plus feedback on a certain episode. And that's kind of what happens with ours. And we get these movies where people keep telling us over and over that they hadn't even heard of used cars. And that just, Oh man, that makes me so happy that people are now seeing used cars or uh, even, even if it's 10 people, that makes us really happy. Yeah. No, uh, I, I'm a big believer in that too. You know, we try on our podcast, how did this get made to pick movies that are going to at least be interesting. Like they're not just here to like make you like pluck out your eyeballs, you know, like we want to, find things that have some merit on some level. Like, so it is kind of fun to go back and see people doing things. Uh, you know, maybe actors that have become much bigger and smaller parts. And, you know, I, I'm excited to talk to you guys because I feel like there's a couple of eighties movies that I grew up with that were like very influential to me that I feel like don't often get referenced that. Much. Okay. I want to, um, I, I, first. before yeah. we get into that, let me, let me interrupt real quick. I just had to say, I, I really appreciate the way that you and Jason and June approach, quote unquote, bad movies. You do it, in my opinion, like Mystery Science Theater. Even if you're laughing at a performance or a special effect, there's still respect for the art. There's still respect for the filmmakers. I think that's all because you're all filmmakers in your own right. But I think that if you're going to make fun of, quote unquote, bad movies, you're among the people who do it right. Well, you're so nice to say that, you know, I will say that. The one thing that we set out to do, and it's not even a conscious thing, like the, the whole reason why we started this podcast um, was to, like, I love the conversation after a movie. Like, and when I grew up, the, the most fun was like, you know, going to see a movie and then going to like the Denny's afterwards or whatever it was. And just like sitting with your friends going, oh, I like that part. Or I like this. Now we could do how did this get made with like Phantom Thread. It just wouldn't be as funny because it's like, oh, yeah, I really like that movie. Did you like that part? Oh, that was really cool. Like, and you, we, we have, you know, so we're stocking the pond a little bit by picking things that are definitely more to talk about. But yeah, like at the end of the day, we love movies and we want, like, it's not us to be like holier than thou or, you know, no, it's like, no, it, I don't get that at all. And I'm, I'm very care. I'm very, I keep an ear out for that stuff. I don't like it when people are derisive towards filmmakers, even if you don't like their movies. You got to have a modicum of respect if you're a movie fan, period. A hundred percent. And look, and that is to say that there are choices. We just did um, Ladybugs. It's not released yet. But Ladybugs is an interesting movie because Ladybugs, Rodney Dangerfield, kind (laughs) of uh, after back to school, like a lot of years after back to school. And it's a movie that just simply doesn't age well. And it's a cult. It's a cult hit. Like it's still remembered. People who saw that when they were 14 still like to not maybe they don't even like the movie but like you said they still like to talk about it <laughs> uh, well i mean you know it's so funny because june when i put on ladybugs like this is my favorite movie and then her jaw just dropped because it is <laughs> so sexist and weird. like it like it 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 does it just doesn't age well and there's a, there's a fun there's a fun way of looking at these things too like wow that was how far we've come like you know there's nothing wrong with there's, a, there's only wrong now, but like, this is the things that we grew up with that we took for granted. I mean, that was the other thing too. Like a lot of my attitudes and, and things that I have to get, have gotten rid of as I gotten older have been created by these movies that a, a lot of times were just created by people that were reinforcing really bad stereotypes. I mean, right. it's, you we know, grew, we grew up thinking like Chevy Chase and Caddyshack is how we, is it was cool to act that way. No, it's not cool to act like that. No, well, look, I mean, the moral of Ladybugs, not, you know, look, spoiler alert, is <laughs> at the end, all right, so it's like they get, you know, they, they get a boy to play on a girl's soccer team. And then at the end, the boy basically goes, girls, you got to, you got to play the game yourself. And then the girls win. So what do you think the postscript is in this movie? Oh, well, next season, they just get a bunch of boys to replace all the girls on the soccer team. And now they're winning all the time. Like, that's the end. I'm like, wait, that's the moral? The moral is, like, stack the whole team with boys? Well, dude, I, I, I know that it's it's now become a bit of a punching bag, and there's a reason, but maybe the poster child for how things change is look at Revenge of the Nerds and how we 
took to it in the 80s because of how it felt like it was a, a movie about empowerment and okay you know it's raucous and irreverent it was like a it was like a it was middle finger to the jocks and the system and then you get older and you realize what the nerds are doing right what the nerds are doing is equally if not much worse than what the jocks were doing it's it yeah it i mean in that and and i think part of that enjoyment is what we get out of the podcast too it's just like it's, it's a chance for us to kind of just talk about like these choices that were okay or acceptable yeah but uh, that means a lot thank you guys uh, coming from both of you guys about the podcast we it's we do it with love we love that we love movies and we love talking about movies you know with, with what i love about it we'll move on i'm sorry is that how did this get made could be taken as oh my god this is rotten how did this get made but it could be taken as this is wildly entertaining how did this make it through the system in the first place well yeah like to me well you know the title is the title and I think the way that when we look at our movies, it's sort of like I want to talk about Fast and the Furious the same way I'll talk about Ladybugs. You know, it's like I love both of them. And for, you know, and they're fun to watch. And there was something so enjoyable about, you know, it's like we're not hating. We love movies. And like, but there is, I, I, you know, Fast and Furious. I could talk about that all day and night because it's just like there's so much there that is just bananas. It, these are movies that need to be like digested and picked apart and and, and examined, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like why do these choices exist? Hurricane heist, sign me up. I'm ready to go. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. So, Paul, let's let's start with um, one of the movies that you love from the 80s that you don't feel like gets talked about enough. OK. Um, oh, man. All right. Well, there's a couple. And depending on who I talk about, well, I, can I give you three and then you guys tell me what you want to what we what, OK. So movies that I love that I feel like people don't know i love cloak and dagger cloak and dagger dabney coleman dabney coleman is first rate <laughs> it, it, it is it is just one of those movies that i i loved right uh, i i also oh, here, wait, before you move to your yeah. next one here's a quick anecdote yes my grandmother my maternal grandmother she used to record movies for me off of hbo she'd like just hit record at 10 p.m and then go to bed and then the next morning if i happened to get two and a half movies here you go scott she'd give me the, the vhs tape she would never go to the movies, but late, like literally four or five blocks away, there was a double feature. You know how the studios used to say, come see this on Saturday night and you could stay to watch this one that opened last. Week. I saw Last Crusade and uh, Star Trek five back to back. It was great. Paramount double feature. Right. And for me, this was Cloak and Dagger was the one coming out in a few weeks. And the one that had been out, I think it was this way, was The Last Starfighter. Oh, great. I mean, Last Starfighter. Amazing. Um, <laughs> All right. Great pick, Cloak and Dagger. Drew, what do you think of that one? Well, I love I love Richard Franklin, the filmmaker, and we've started talking about him a little bit. And I, it is by far the least seen of his movies, I think, uh, his big movies, because, or at, at the least discussed of his movies, because I think Psycho 2 has had a, a redemption. I think people have gone back and looked at that and realized what it is. Psycho I think, 2 is very good. Oh, it's it's really good. And and, 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 and it's, uh, it's funny because I think when you think about Psycho 2, you you think about Psycho Three, yeah. Uh, you know, and and Psycho Three is where it gets off the rails. I even like Psycho Four, the the beginning where they kind of reach like the HBO one that they made. Um, but Psycho Two is scary. Um, but yeah, I think Richard Franklin, uh, a huge Hitchcock fan, and when you look at Rogue Games or you look at Psycho Two, the Hitchcock thing is very clear. I don't think people understood what Cloak and Dagger was supposed to be. I think they sold it like a Spielberg movie, and that's not Richard Franklin. He was making more of a weird kids spy fantasy. Yeah. He was making a kids kids Hitchcock movie. Yeah. That's what it is. It's a good pick, Paul, because I don't think people saw that one. Yeah, that is one that I I, I, um, I, I want to go back and watch again, and I haven't watched it in a little bit. Um, and again, now these are you know movies that I feel like uh, – that I watched a lot. So uh, the other one that I loved when I was a kid, and it's, by the way, a very similar choice, but Daryl. Do you guys remember Daryl? Of course. Yeah. So Daryl was another one that, again, I have not, I have not seen it since I watched it. But I, you know, I think when I was a kid growing up, like you, I identified a lot with these movies where the kids are the, you know, the star or whatever. But there's like, you know, all I remember was watching Daryl a lot. Uh, and I love, you know, I, I loved it. Um, uh, you know, what I love about Daryl Michael McKean. I was just going to say Michael McKean. Yeah. Really, really good. He's basically like a robot boy, right? Like a robot. Oh boy. yeah. A kid from never ending story. Right. 
But that's a great cast. That's one I haven't seen since, like, I didn't see it theatrically. I probably saw it at a VHS rental in 1987 or whenever it came out. And like Cloak and Dagger, haven't seen it in 30 years. But when we get to it for the show, I'm looking forward great to it. Great cast. Mary Beth Hurt and I, I, Colleen Camp, who I think is one of those underrated comedy performers from the 80s who will probably hit about six classic Colleen Camp performances by the end of the decade. Oh, I mean, that's the thing. Like, There are these actresses and actors that just were putting in solid performances after, you know, like, you know, it's like, and, and like, again, Michael McKean was like one of those guys. I mean, I think he's phenomenal on Better Call Saul. I mean, just blows my mind. He's always good. He's even if the movie is junk, he's uh, like a rose in it. He's always good. Yeah. Um, all right. So now I'm going to, I have one that I know is more popular and I have, and, and one that I watch a lot. And again, if I'm going to go on my kid theme, I will go that um, Space Camp was, uh, I was another gonna, a big one for me. so fucked up. I wish I had done it. When you said Daryl and you started talking about it, my brain said, Daryl always meshes with Space Camp with me. <laughs> well, because it's like, this is, these are the movies that like, that were very empowering as a kid. Like, you're like, oh, I'm going to go to space. I'm going to be a spy. I'm going to robot boy. You know, it's like, and you know, Flight of the Navigator obviously falls in that category too. But it's like, the, those movies, like, they, you know, it's like it's kid representation to a certain extent. You know, it's like there's so many movies. Have you seen the Goonies as an adult, Paul? Oh, I, I mean, Goonies is like, I mean, I was going obscure and like Goonies is like my. I, I'm apex. just saying, like, do you have uh, my main question is, do you have any different opinion on the Goonies now than when? Because as a kid, I loved it. Five stars across the board. As an adult, I think it works in bits and pieces. I think I'm blind to Goonies, I I uh, I I love it. I, I you know I, I feel like I watched it. I, I think I watched it recently. But you know, again, it's like, am I watching it with a critical eye? I don't know. Like to me, Ghostbusters, I've seen so many times. It holds up in the theater perfectly. Like I, I to me, I'm like great. Goonies, maybe you're. You could be right. You could be right. I mean. Well, let, let, let's let's make one thing clear. Even if you were to, you know, see some of the scenes now, that doesn't mean you love it less. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no. And I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, I, I watched it critically. Like, some of these movies are just, like, locked in amber as being good. Like, Karate Kid, great. Back to the Future, great. Princess Bride, great. You know, like, big, great. Gremlins, great. Like, you know, it's like, I don't even know if I, you know, but then, like, sometimes I'll stumble upon something like, like, uh... Like I was, oh, actually last night I was like watching a little bit of like Roger Rabbit. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I, I don't remember that. Or, you know, it's like, you know, like certain things change. Like short circuit is a little bit like not as, you know, I wasn't like jumped in on, you know, I, you know, Willow, I never liked as a kid. I never will. That's a good one. I mean, if I'm not trying to, we're not trying to shoot, you know, we're not trying to knock anybody's favorite movie here, but Willow for me is a big one that I really liked as a kid, saw it probably 10 years ago. And it was, it just felt very beholden to better stories, beholden to better filmmakers and kind of lazy. Okay. So it is lazy. That's me on Willow. Um, That's I mean, how I feel. I feel like I, I watched when I was a kid, I felt I like, I've only fallen asleep in a couple of movies. Um, uh, and Willow was the one, the first one I remember going to my dad, like, I'm going to go to sleep I now. remember when Willow <laughs> was getting ready to come out, I was uh, already a projectionist. And I was working at the theater. And when we first got the poster, there had been zero word that anything was coming from Lucas. Lucas had been off the radar since Howard the Duck and basically hiding and licking wounds. And there was the question, is he ever, ever, ever going to go back to Star Wars? And at that point, you know, nobody knew an answer. Nobody realized what he was doing so when that first willow teaser poster forget all you know or think you know and just the clouds first came to the theater and we unrolled it the first question was what the hell is this why is george lucas's name on it what's happening um and there was that real sense and i love that movies could sneak up on us in the 80s that you know i remember when we first got word about golden child and there was a rumor that it was a Beverly Hills Cop sequel. And there was and there was no way to go find any of this stuff out or sort it out. Rumors got started weird ways and spread back then. Oh, oh how about this, guys? I guarantee you in both of your schoolyards, somebody told you this thing. Ready? 
oh, they're making 13 Friday the 13th. That's the plan from the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Every kid, every schoolyard had a kid who said that they're making 13 of them. I I read it. I, I, my rumors were on the schoolyard, uh, movie related rumors was, uh, was that, that Darth, I, Darth Vader was burned in volcano, which I, which is something that came to be true, but that was like, I'm back in watching like back when I was a kid, like, so I was very excited to see that that actually somehow panned out. Um, Oh, like wrap back around to space camp. Do either of you gents remember how the film was impacted by, uh, the, uh, the challenger? I can only imagine terribly. Yeah, but I mean, as a kid, I remember seeing the Challenger explosion in school, and I I also remember going to see Space Camp with my cousin in the movies. So it didn't impact me because I was, you know, what does a kid know about that kind of tragedy? Well, I was, I, it, I filmed, I I was in my high school parking lot filming the Challenger explosion. Um, oh, you were in Florida? Yeah, we lived close enough that we could see launches wow. from where we were, and we were That's standing outside filming scary. it when it happened. Holy moly! I had a sick day from school, and I was watching it. And uh, and it was yeah, it was that it was crazy. Um, and it definitely there was a, a moment where they talked about Space Camp not coming out or getting pushed, and I think they just decided it. It's so funny. We did a bonus, one of our very first bonus episodes, Paul. We had Leah Thompson come on, and we talked to her about everything from the '80s that she did. Uh, that's we love to have people come on and talk through just their '80s movies, like we had Nancy Allen do it. Um, but Leah came on, and uh, Scott really loves space camp and scott did this great intro for space camp and she went eh. uh, <laughs> it was a moment where you realize you like a movie more than somebody who was in it and it's because of the experiences you had you you're you just got to oh, watch absolutely. it whereas she has all the other memories and what it should have been or yeah uh, apparently it was not all that yeah. easy of a shoot so. uh, i can only imagine by the way yeah i can i can definitely imagine you know there's interesting movies too that i feel like from the 80s where I've, I mean, and again, we're trying to, uh, we're, I know we're trying to go around the, um, we're, we're trying to go on the edges here a little bit, right? Like, and, and not be like, oh, Die Hard or Ghostbusters or Empire or Terminator, right? So it's like, I, I'm, where do you guys, fa- where do you guys fall on this? Because I feel like this movie, I'm going to, I'm really setting it up, but I feel like this movie, people have not seen that much. I'm going to bring it up right now. It's uh, Uncle Buck. It's a I, it's funny. It's one of the pure Hughes comedies because there's two different kinds of Hughes where there's Hughes trying to be, I think, more where he was trying to grow up and he had that whole plan. People forget that he came from advertising and he had this plan that he laid out early on where he said he wanted to make a movie about all the stages of life. So he wanted to start when you were in junior high and high school. He wanted to go through college. He wanted to take you into early adulthood, getting jobs. He wanted to do having a baby. He wanted to do marriage like he wanted to make a comedy about each of the landmarks that you have over the course of your life. And so I think there was the work that he considered that. And then there was the pure comedy that he wrote that was more along the lines of the vacation or Uncle Buck, where I think Uncle Buck is well, but just vacation as a King. parent, though, I will say vacation is one of the best like uh, and I think we've seen it not be duplicated. Well, it's a it's a ubiquitous uh, idea that it, like it's like, oh, yeah, there should be a movie about a family going on vacation. That is something that is so identifiable. And. He really nailed, oh, the, and I think the script really... for that is so packed with character, and it is so smartly constructed in terms of the way they break Clark over the course of the trip. Yeah, yeah, and and it's re- and and I think there's something about that movie when you look at it, you go, and of course, I didn't see that movie re- like that was a little bit too old for me at the time when it came out. Um, but it's like it's not it's not doing anything really, really super crazy until the very, very end when they like basically take someone hostage like but it's like but like you know what i'm thinking but everything about it is like is about right you know and i feel like sometimes these movies now or remakes and i'm not talking about the remake of vacation in particular i'm just talking about in general i think the idea is like let's push it push it push it and i think what you realize what i love of i mean planes trains and automobiles one of my favorite uh comedies uh, just a beautiful movie again due date i would say has very uh strong similarities to that and they push it so much it's like no, what was great about those movies is the simplicity of them. 
There's it's nothing the crazy. It's not, it's not the fact that they fell in a cesspool. It's the fact that they are funny characters being put through strange situations. And to bring go back around to Uncle Buck, I would consider it kind of like a Hallmark card movie. You know what it is before you even open it. It's warm. It's friendly. It's familiar. It's a little bit funny. And it's satisfying. You know what I mean? It's not. It's a vehicle for John Candy's charm. And as a vehicle for John Candy's charm, Uncle Buck is a damn good movie. I think it's very likable. Well, it, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, and there's some fun, like weird, dark stuff in there too. And the, it's like not dark, dark, but like you know, like, when you think back to these movies in the '80s, it's like he's basically stopping this guy from essentially like this, you know, this creep from like you know having sex with his his uh, his niece. You know, it's like it's a funny idea too. It's like I guess I don't know. It's it. There's a lot, you know, they, they let. I feel like that would be a harder movie to make right now, a PG version of I, that movie. I, I don't know if you I would be. Well, that would Hughes be Hughes had a real tendency to once he found a writer or once he found an actor he liked. He was one of the very best at writing for a voice and at knowing how to make that person shine. I think he did it with Candy. Uh, clearly, he loved him. But you look at Uncle Buck. You look at the scenes he had with Macaulay in that film. There is no question that one of the reasons Home Alone exists is because he realized he had the kid to do it. And it makes me sad that Anthony Michael Hall kind of had his falling out with him early because I do wonder if if Anthony Michael Hall had been the guy who went through all those movies with him and if he had maintained that relationship, early Anthony Michael Hall is one of the funniest, most on-point just comic actors. His timing was insanity when he was a kid. Yeah, it's always tough. It's tough for younger actors to tra- to you know make the leap. Uh, but uh, Anthony Michael Hall still he still does good work. He doesn't work much, but when he does, he's good. It was right? just a special relationship. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was I gonna say? The um, I'll give you two little facts about John Hughes. And I can't tell you where I know him, but I know them from one degree of separation. Um, so you know. I will go out and just say that you know this is, a, this is the the Patreon right. That's a, like we can we can share a lot of hell yeah. Secret this is private. Um, Nobody's listening to this. Uh, so <laughs> um, you know, basically James uh, James Belushi or Jim Belushi uh, stopped him from making movies. Like Curly Sue, he was like done out. Cash me out. I'm done. Oh. <laughs> and um, and hated him so much, but never stopped writing. And in his office in Chicago. His like the way it was described to me was he had bookcases all around the office and above the bookcases, he kept all of his scripts and he just kept on pounding out scripts and they were all up on the bookcases. Like there's apparently uh, a, a sizable collection of unproduced, never to be produced John Hughes screenplays because he loved writing so much that he didn't, even though Belushi took him out of wanting to ever make a movie again. He never stopped wanting to write movies. Well, and you know how fast he wrote. He is a freak. There were there are legends about him turning out screenplay drafts in three or four days, and like drafts that you basically ended up shooting. Um, I know Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was less than a week. Amazing. It's unreal. What came out of him was so close to first draft just because of the clarity of voice that I think that's that's one of the things that you have to just look at him and, and think he was just meant for that. Like it just he was so good at it that it felt like something he was just supposed to do. Paul, uh, one of the questions that we come across on the show, Paul, is uh, movies that we didn't like as kids because Kids like almost everything. A hundred percent. One of the things that I always get blamed for is not liking. Yeah, like you, know, you like everything. Is there anything you don't like? I'm like, no. <laughs> I didn't even understand that was no, a concept. I mean, even as a kid, you never saw something where you were like, oh, "Good God, no. I mean, Baby Secret of the Lost Legend." Or no, no. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you some movies. If we're talking eighties movies, movies I did not like, and and this is my hot take: did not like Labyrinth. Was not a fan. Oh, uh, that is a hot. Take. Yeah. Like um, you know, it just didn't. It didn't like. It didn't hit me the way that I wanted it to. I don't know. Um, I didn't like, um, oh my gosh. Um, what else can I think of that was maybe a good one? Didn't like uh, Return to Oz, although I feel like that probably, I'm not alone there. Um, let's see. Um, I'm just trying to pick, pick, picture a movie that would make like a 12-year-old Paul Shear walk out of the theater like, damn it. Oh, the first movie I ever walked out of it, I don't know if it's, a ni- if it's an 80s movie, probably a 90s movie. Um, is uh, Last Action Hero. 
Um, it's probably the only one of the only I've ever really walked out of. Um, but yeah, Good man. Yeah. I, Drew, what, 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 Drew, what, what, name something that you walked, not necessarily left early, but what's something you hated when you were like 12? Oh God. Uh, ones I really hated. Um, well, I told you we just covered one treasure, of the lost or uh, treasure, of the four crowns. Uh, my friend and I literally walked out to go play video games because it was the better option. Um, and I remember getting in a, uh, actual fist fight after legend. Oh, wow. because I couldn't stop making fun of it. I thought it was oh, the right, yeah. goofiest. We're, we're going to save save that anecdote for eighty five. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, um, I feel like I didn't like a lot of like cartoon movies when I was a kid. Like you know, um, I liked almost everything. I think my sister and I walked out of heartbeats. Oh wow! Well, yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, good move. Yeah, uh, but I mean, uh, like even as a kid, like I probably liked. Kind of, I probably liked Smokey and the Bandit three. Right. I mean, I liked almost everything. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, look, I think that like I'm, I'm pressing myself to say uh, Labyrinth because I, I feel like I've watched it again and I'm like, oh, that was good. I mean, you know, sometimes too, it's like when things are scary or weird, it like it takes a second to digest it. But Willow, I mean, we've, you know, we've said Willow, um, but it's weird. It's like it's, it's really you're hard pressed as a kid to find something you don't like. I mean, we recently covered The Dark Crystal, and as an adult, I like it much more. As a kid, it just, I know I should love it. It's a fantasy movie with Muppet ca- puppet characters, and and, if it, I think and it just never clicked with me I think, until I you know saw what? it as an I adult. Think I'm, I think I just, you just caught me in a, a moment, because I'm realizing, hold on. Yes, you're right. I didn't like Dark Crystal. I like Labyrinth. Labyrinth uh, is David Labyrinth Bowie. Labyrinth is Jennifer, the yes. David Bowie. Jennifer yes, Connelly, and I, yeah. I, I, why did I just... I just mixed them up in my head. Yeah, Dark Crystal was the one that I was like, oh, boy. I think, you know, I think one of the common threads between some of what you're bringing up, and this is a great way to segue back into the movie I'm terrified about, and we'll, we'll get to this. You, a lot of them are darker kids' films. Return to Oz is a nightmare machine. It is like an unrelenting nightmare. Dark Crystal is, I think, I, I know I showed it to my one of my sons way too young, and it really freaked him out when we, we did that. So... I think those are movies that are so scary and creepy and unpleasant that I could see why you would just like. By the way, E.T. is a scary, creepy movie. I mean, it's beautiful, too. But you watch E.T. It's like, whoa, that's a little dark. I mean, I I love it. It's a good point. No, no. I hit E.T. at uh, 12 and I didn't scare me one iota. If I saw E.T. at eight. I would have been screaming and crying because <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a it's an intense idea. I mean, you know, and, and even Gremlins, which is built as a kids movie, is it's they're dark. They are dark movies. Yeah. Well, okay. So now, speaking of dark, go. yeah, Paul, how did you make it through Garbage Pail Kids, the movie? Uh, well, I mean, that was a real that was a real toughie. I mean, look. You know, we were talking about these movies that don't age well. I mean, Garbage Pail Kids is – it's interesting. Like, I think we give a lot of flack to, uh, oh, these remakes, these reboots. But this is a, a movie based on a trading card. Yeah. Like, there's <laughs> nothing about Garbage Pail Kids that, sh- that is movie-worthy. It's it's punny names, punny gross-out names, you know, farting Fred. Like, there's – the creators of these cards aren't going like, Oh yeah, this is a character that can have a really interesting arc. I, I mean, but there there's something so wonderful about Garbage Pail Kids, the movie, in the sense that they are trying to figure out how to mix the magic of what these kids' movies could be with these disgusting characters that piss themselves and vomit. And there's one character who's like a greaser, and it's like, who is that appealing to? Like, I, I'm a child that was born. <laughs> In the late seventies, like, come on now, like, I don't even understand what a greaser is, like, but yeah, like, it, it, I love movies like that because all the worst instincts are put together. I mean, it was, it is a, gr- I mean, it is a gross movie. It is a, it is like, uh, it is rough around the. I think that's my fear is I'm afraid of how I'm afraid of how gross it is because I like I've told Scott I can't watch trauma movies because they of how they make me feel aesthetically and garbage pail kids I remember I was a projectionist manager when it came out and just I felt bad showing it to children I felt like an abuser putting that thing on well I will tell you this much it I maybe my maybe my my brain has been permanently um warped it was not 
it was not like I can't get through this because I'm so grossed out. I will tell you that. <laughs> it wasn't like a trauma movie. It wasn't like a Samurai Cop or whatever that is or whatever that the is that the one that everyone tells me to watch. Sergeant Kabuki Man. Oh my god. Yeah. That like. Oh boy. Toxic Avenger has a shot in it that freaked me out when I was younger, and, and it's the, it involves a kid getting run over by a car. And I remember thinking, even then, I was like, well, I just kind of wanted a dirty joke, and now you gave me something I just yeah. don't like. Like, that was just <laughs> ugly. Uh, um, I, you know, I just wanted some raunchy jokes, and you're showing me gruesome carnage. Uh, but um, what, what I find fascinating is movies like The Garbage Pail Kids and, and like, pop idol movies, like what, what I call novelty yes. movies. Yes. You know? Uh, I, they're, they're almost always bad, but there's something absolutely fascinating about it. When you look back and go, somebody handed you a check for multiple millions of dollars to make a movie based on the garbage pail kids, because the cards were that popular. And I just find something fascinating about that marriage of cynical consumerism and legitimate filmmaking or semi-legitimate. What it is to me, it it re like it, it, it reeks of. And I don't know why I view it as being men, but men in a room going like, all right, we got to make money. Uh, what do we got to do? Garbage pail kids. Uh, who wants to do that? I'll do that. All right, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, great. You go make it. It's, it's the same mentality that I've heard when people talk about um, that. I mean, I, this is a while ago, but I heard that like certain uh, film executives have like the max. I mean, Maxim's an old magazine now, but the Maxim 100, they would cast from that. It would be like, uh, yeah, put her in the movie. If she was in the 100, you'd get cast in a movie. And it's like, it's just the wrong way to go about, like, A, casting someone or B, making a movie. It's just like, it's, it's based on things that are, that don't have, you know, there's no story to tell there. Yeah, yeah. It's, an, it's really fascinating because as an adult, you look at a movie like the Garbage Pail Kids movie and you think that's pure commerce. But if you happen to see it, whether you liked it or not, when you were 8, 9, 10, 14, that's just like a legitimate weird movie. It's not. It's not it's not a corporate product. It's just a bizarre film you saw one day. Yes, and that, right. that's what I like about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, another one that you guys did recently that I'm fascinated by, and I'm so glad you did it because I I think I might have even sent it to you when we were talking about doing the toys episode as a suggestion. Oh, yeah. Was the jazz singer? Um, you know you're in trouble when six minutes in there's blackface. Drew, where's Rivka? Yeah, weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, wait, but wait. Before I, I want to hear Paul expound on the on his experience with the jazz singer. But before we do that, let me just. When I was a kid growing up, my not very religious, but of course my grandparents were a little bit religious. Therefore, my parents were a little religious, so it trickled down to me. And when we were kids, we we my parents would make a big deal out of us watching movies like The Frisco Kid because it was a comedy about a rabbi and the jazz singer. And as a kid, I had no idea how atrocious this movie was. I thought it was just a boring old grown-ups musical. And I, I watched it again a few months ago. Holy shit. Now, Paul, please go. Well, I mean, no, I mean, you, you said exactly what am I... You know, it, it's a crazy thing because there are these things where, you know, the jazz singer was, you know, one movie where, like, you hear about it, you know of it, and you assume it's good on some level. No one critically looks at these things like after a certain point, and then you watch it. And look, I mean, everything you just said, it's like Neil Diamond's not an actor. Uh, and no offense, he's a great singer. Uh, but, you know, to lead a movie um, and to be playing a character who looks about 40, <laughs> and I would argue is playing like a, a young 20-year-old. I mean, there, you know, there's a whole thing where they're uh, basically, I think they're having like uh, Passover dinner, and they mix that with uh, like a love scene. It's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and and it, it camp. It's the camp, like the old Susan Sontag definition. My favorite quote ever is: "Camp is failed seriousness. Camp is not intentional. Camp is when you try." I'm telling an actor, like he doesn't know. But in my like one definition of camp is if you try to be serious and fail, that's camp, and camp is never good. Therefore, John Waters is not camp. He's trying to be arch and funny. Uh, yeah. And Jazz Singer is laughable. Like, laugh Oh, my God. Lawrence Olivier. Uh, Paul, as an actor, when you look at what Lawrence Olivier does in that film, I, I don't even understand his 
first his vocal choice because it is such a crazy voice he puts on and such a crazy version of the accent but it's a cartoon rabbi it sounds like a cartoon rabbi from a pink panther cartoon i'm a big i'm a big well i mean first of all there's a couple interesting things here um and and it all comes back to ladybugs the director of ladybugs sydney fury fired off of jazz singer (laughs) also fired uh off of superman four um so he has an interesting uh you know uh just a whole thing you know uh and, but they shot so much of the jazz singer and then went back and just got rid of all that footage i think they shot like 40 something hours like shot 40 hours not like like two or three days like footage and uh and they went back and reshot it and i'm a big believer in uh you're only as good as your director and the vision of the film because um, I put Mark Wahlberg in this camp. Mark Wahlberg is an actor that I enjoy watching when directed well. Like when you watch Mark Wahlberg in Boogie Nights or Departed, I'm like, fuck, man, that guy. I heart great. Huckabees. And then when you watch him in like, I will add the first. Te- I will add uh, the first Ted to that list. Oh, I, I, I mean, there's more. There's more than what we've even mentioned. But then when you watch him in the hands of somebody like again, Adam McKay, great. Like he, he has a. I, I would argue that Mark Wahlberg has a pile of great performances and then a pile of performances that you're like that guy gave you that like like max Payne or something like that and you're like whoa 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 and he's an interesting guy the happening oh the happening yeah but i mean and he's a guy who's funny he can do stuff in the hands of a uh an unskilled director i mean that's you know i, I always am a big believer in this too it's like you watch a lot of people do these i think it happens a lot in music like you make an album it's a huge hit and you know, everything works on it. And then the second album, they're like, you know what? I don't need that producer anymore. I'm going to make it myself. And then it sucks, you know? So true. And it's how I feel also. And I'm not talking bad about these people. I respect them very much. But it's like when you look at M. Night Shyamalan's career. Early in his career, when he had producers who had control over him, who had he had to listen to, then he made great movies. And then eventually, like you said, I think he said, I don't really need that guiding hand anymore. I'm going to do it myself. And left to his own devices, movies weren't as good. Well, it's it's interesting. Like, I will tell you, like, I've been involved in so many things on the writing side, production side. And when you get a note, and you hate it, and you rail against it. And then, but you, it forces a change. Inevitably, I don't think I've ever thought, oh, I wish I never made that change. Inevitably, you, you, that absorbs into you you become one with it and then you get a better product because of it and when you stop saying i'm going to take notes it is good everyone needs something and even the dumbest note and the shittiest pitch like if you use it the right way and it's and, and i can say this as someone who does not take them great but you, if you if you really trying to figure out like how does it come, it, it does help you make it just better. hearing just sometimes hearing the note in itself is enough yeah, I'm like, I got, I got like, I've gotten shitty, shitty notes. And it doesn't mean you have to take the note. It's like, and, it, and it's like, it's a cliche thing. It's like, what's behind the note? But it does. If it allows you to like think and readdress and turn, you'll just make a better thing because it is a collaborative effort. Filmmaking that, is that collaborative. Is, that is and, a key word, man. And I've never, there, there, there is a reason films are not made by one person. And there is a reason that when you see these movies sometimes that come out of story groups or they come out of really strong groups of brain trusts that get put together, um, they, they push each other forward. It's not about being the loudest person in the room. It's literally about being able to sift through ideas and things. And I, I do, I think there's, there's a people forget well, writer's that. room is a great, uh, a writer's room is a great idea. I mean, for a movie, a writer's room can work. I mean, I think that that's what Ryan Johnson went through in Last Jedi. Like, I mean, besides having like Rom as producer, he was like working with Lucas and being very hands on and create like good, uh, good writers make good writers better. That's just I mean, if you have if you can put your ego down and go, my idea was a B, but yours was actually yours is better. And then your screenplay is now better because you said your idea works. That, I mean, I, I have lots of co-writers and I would gladly take their idea if it was better than mine. You don't got to not have an ego when you're writing with people, I think. Someone said to me one time, like uh, one of my friends who worked on on uh, Larry Sanders, they were like, uh, they said, like, Gary Shandling will take a joke pitch from him. <laughs> if it's funny, he would take it. And and it's like, and, and you know, there's a there's a. 
there's something true about that in the sense that it's like, yeah, like, why are you got some better? Let's do it. Like, you know, it's like, let's go. Like, you know, it's like where it just, you know, you, you are all in the service of this thing and, and you only look good. I mean, the, the, the biggest joke of the whole thing is like, if I take your note and it's my movie, I'm still going to get all the credit for it. And like, yeah, I may know that you did it. Like, it's like, it's a weird thing to be like, I'm not, people wouldn't even know that you gave me that, but I still want to be like, no, it's only mine. I, I just, I don't know. The best people I always feel like are interesting, are good well, collaborators. We, absolutely. Why don't we get off on this angle? I have a question for you guys. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Which movie is worse, Mac and Me or Jaws the Revenge? Ooh. Uh, I would argue Jaws the Revenge is insane. And it's insane in a way that you could only get when the head of the studio wants to give his wife a present. <laughs> Whereas Mac and Me is insane in the way that you get when a corporation thinks they can easily replicate a success in a field they have nothing to do with. Just because you're McDonald's doesn't mean you can figure movies out. By the way, McDonald's is Garbage Pail Kids. Same idea. It's like, you know, like, all right, we're getting this business now. It's like, no, 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 that doesn't, that's not the way it goes. Exactly. And, and uh, I, the reason I asked is obviously, Paul, you covered both of those movies on, on how did this get made. Which was uh, which was more painful to get through? You know, it's funny. They again, they all blur. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I can tell you everything from both. I remember them both. But it's like I, I like legitimately enjoy watching them. And sometimes, like the choices are insane. I think there is something about Mac and Me that is more enjoyable. Simply on, whoa, this is crazy. And there's something about Jaws Four, which is like, well, this is a cynical money grab. And I think that those are the things that. Like I'm much – we talked about this on the podcast one time. Like I am all for the Wachowskis making movies even though I didn't love um, the Mila and um, – uh, Jupiter uh, Ascending. Jupiter Ascending. I'm like make more of that, please. Crazy ideas. Do things differently. Make things that are challenging and I feel like Mac and Me, it does not work. It's weird as shit but it is fun to watch simply because it doesn't feel like – it's of this world, you know, in, in a weird way, like, you know, whereas no, Jaws no, is like, it feels uh, like it was made by a boardroom. It really does. Yeah. And there's something about that. Like, I, I talk about this all the time, this idea of like four quadrant movies and like a four quadrant movie. I'm sure your audience knows, but I'll explain it. Like, it's like, you know, this idea that it's like, good for men and women, old and young, you know, it, it almost appeals to everything. Like to me, the perfect example of when a four quadrant movie goes terribly is something like Green Lantern, the Ryan Reynolds movie. It's like, Yep. That is something that is trying so hard to be everything to everyone that it is nothing to no one. You know, it's like, and it's like, um, and a lot of the times that's the movies that I enjoy the most on our podcast because it's like, wow, what were they thinking? It was like skateboards and drug, you know, it's like this and that, you know, it's like just mixing and matching, hoping that something is going to connect on some level. It, it is, um, yeah, it's a, cra it's a crazy thing. Uh, but I, um, have I am, you seen Valerian yet? Uh, I did see Valerian. Yes, we did that on one of our uh, special. That, another movie where I'm like, let's keep it going. Like I, I, I love it. Like give me. I mean, look, that movie again is a weird movie, and I think it's ambition that we like to see ambition. And even if it doesn't like translate to box office, as somebody who makes films or writes about films, we respect shooting for the stars. To use a one hundred percent, I would rather see that than a handful of stuff that. You just go like, ugh, the minute you like, the minute you see it, like the poster, you're like, ugh, like, whereas like, I'm like, ooh, all right. Like, yeah, I will it, say I, that a swing and a miss. I will say that two of the biggest unintentional laughs for me in the eighties, one was in Jaws, the revenge when the shark roars, because that's fucking crazy. And it's one of those things in the theater. I couldn't stop laughing after that. I could not believe I had witnessed it. And the other is in deadly friend with the basketball, which has to be one of the great are you kidding me? Gore shots of all time. Christy Swanson smashes uh, Anne Ramsey's head off with a basketball. I did not see this. And I like it was fired out of wow. a cannon. You have never seen anything like it. Yeah. Oh, oh you know, who, you know, who'd like deadly friend. <laughs> who? Jason. I'm sure. Oh, my gosh. Deadly friend. I got to look at this. It sounds amazing. All right. And while we're giving you movies to look at, we're going to wrap this up. We've got a challenge for you. And uh, we would really love for you. You know what, Drew? After, you know, I'll let you announce the movie that we agreed on. But 
having having heard what Paul said about his show, I'm thinking this movie just might be just like wretched enough to make it not fun. Oh, but oh, I don't know, man. I I can only imagine June and Jason's conversation. I would be elated if how did this get made could cover Tarzan the Ape Man. Oh, you know what? Saw that in the theater. Um, uh, my stepfather loved that movie. Um, I oh wait, oh it's not it's not Tarzan Legend of Grace Stoke. Uh, that no, was you're thinking of Grace Stoke with Christopher no. Lambert. Yeah. No, this is the one with uh, Bo, Bo Derek. Derek. Oh, oh yeah, wow. It's it is because we've talked about this before. I think John Derek might be the worst filmmaker that had major releases in the 80s, like where you could say his films were genuinely released on a major studio blockbuster level. And he is look made for six million, made for almost 40. Oh, and and Tarzan, the ape man is maybe the biggest thing he and Bo Derek ever made together. Oh, no, it was his only real mainstream ish. And uh, boy, release. yeah, boy, it is terrible. Um, it and would um, not even now, now. This looks kind of fun for me to watch. Not fun. Oh, huh? No, no. I think it could be. I I think Richard Harris is fascinating. I think when you guys no, I get was just having Miles second Keith, thoughts. It is. I just to clarify. I, I it's it's tacky. It's really tacky. Oh, it is. And but I would love to hear Jason and June. What well, one of my very oh, favorite things on your God. show is when June has a theory about a film, and and Jason gets excited about the theory even before he hears it and i this movie is nothing but theories all wall to wall it, i can't imagine the two of them making through an entire episode without needing a two-parter or a three-part like there's so much to take apart in that I, film. I, I mean this movie is almost two hours too wow very long if you uh, if you were to put on tarzan the eight man i i'm only going by what i know from june from the podcast i would guess she'll make it 35 minutes <laughs> and then go, night honey oh my gosh wow 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 all right the, the gauntlet has been thrown thrown yeah paul thank you i love thank it. you so much for joining us we both love your show and kudos to you on the uh you've had a, a nice streak lately on the disaster artist and uh the national lampoon film little cameo there i loved so uh, kudos to you. Keep up the great work. And thanks again. man. Uh, well, thank you guys so much. Like I said, it was a, a pleasure to uh, to talk these movies with you. Uh, Paul, uh, I look forward to seeing you guys around. Uh, tell Jason again. He killed it at Sundance. I wish I had seen him up there. Um, oh, yeah. We will, uh, we will catch up very soon. All right. Well, thank you so much. Bye bye, guys. Take care. 